Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Scrubbed In Show. I hope you've all been keeping well. This week we have with us another guest. We have with us Conrad Dubschutz, who is the National Director for the NHS Innovation Accelerator, as well as the Chief Enterprise Officer at UCL Partners. Prior to this, he spent a large degree of his time in the pharmaceutical industry. So we are super excited to have you on the show today, Conrad. How are you? I'm really good. Thanks uh, for having me. Don't mind me drinking my coffee while we chat. We did a bit of snooping around, looked at your LinkedIn, li- you know, listened to a few of your podcast episodes, and we want to hear the origin of your career, the story. I know you had big positions at Pfizer, Novartis, but tell us a young Conrad, you know, when you are getting your feet wet, entering the world of digital and marketing. Tell us about that. Let's start from there. Do you mean when I still had hair on my head? That, <laughs> yeah, that, that's all gone or about to, about to go. So thanks for the question. Thanks for, for having me. It's really great um, to be here. I started off, um, actually, my, my sort of entrepreneurial journey started in school um, when I was doing my, my A-levels. And I'm, I'm not going to tell the whole story since then. But um, <laughs> just to pick something up, when I was um, 16, I've opened my own uh, company in school. So we used to organize concerts for um, for people, um, and funny enough, heavy metal concerts, oh, wow. um, like proper, you know, long hair. And, and <laughs> I did never had long hair, hair. Um, but um, we had a few heavy metal bands, and I have a few friends that are in that space. Yeah, so we just charge them tickets and organize some stuff in the late afternoon and um, get people to listen to some some music and would do a barbecue and. All that money goes into the school, like into doing stuff culturally. It was never for me, but that was my first exposure to to entrepreneurship. So that brings me on to a question. Me and Ams had this debate literally last week. Do you think entrepreneurship is something you are born with or do you think it is something you develop? Yeah, great question. I think um, I, I don't usually call it entrepreneurship. I call it the gift of the gap. Mm-hmm. And that's, I'm afraid that's you're born with that. But you're born with that, right? Um, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because seeing opportunity uh, when it arises um, is difficult to difficult to learn. Um, and you know what? It's okay that not everybody can be and should be an entrepreneur or have the gift of the gap. Because quite frankly, you need collaboration of a whole host of different characters to get stuff done. You need mm-hmm. people that are late adopters or that come along. And then actually, very often, it's the later people that actually do the hard craft and do the work, right? Whilst the mm. entrepreneur and innovator is already flying high somewhere else again. Mm. I, I agree. And thank you for reassuring people that you don't need to be entrepreneurship. I know we talk about a lot of entrepreneurs on the postcards, but everyone needs to be an entrepreneur. There are other skill sets no. and avenues to go through. Abdul, if we're all entrepreneurs, in all honesty, who's going to increase productivity in our country? Nobody. Yeah, because we're all running around with ideas, and and nothing's ever going to happen. Mm. No, I agree. You seem to have this entrepreneurial trait at a young age. Tell us a bit more about your working career. What were the first few roles you did, and why did you choose to go down that path? Yeah, um, I think the the biggest sort of experience I had um, in a, in a younger life was running my own company in, in Germany. And that was, a um, funnily enough, I didn't look like it. It was a fashion brand. Um, oh, wow. So I wasn't a designer, and uh, but I did everything else. Um, for, for We did that for about six years. And that world fashion retail is such a special space to be in um, on both ends of the spectrum, right? Mm. Um, it's, mm. um, it's rewarding. But on the other side, it's the most backstabbing sector you can ever work in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I managed to survive that for six years. 
um, but then company went bust in 2009. That's part of entrepreneurship, right? Um, mm. admitting mm. defeat. Um, and uh, there was no more money in the system. The banks, I don't know how old you guys are, but you've, you've probably know this 2008, there was no more money for anybody. Yeah. And mm. the banks stopped lending. And in fashion retail, you, you live off the, um, you live off the bank. And that's it. Mm. And if the bank says, well, we now need five more criteria fulfilled for you to be able to finance your production loan for your orders and you can't, you're done. Yeah. And that was literally done. Yeah. But that left sort of the biggest impression, that whole journey there. And what also left an impression is then how I got to the UK by um, packing everything in a van, my ex-partner and I at the time, and then my little dog, Lily, with a van over to, to England. Um, with uh, 500 pounds in the pocket and a, a flat paid for two months in Streatham. And uh, mm. that was it. No jobs, no nothing. Because I felt strongly, or we at the time felt strongly, we need to get out of Germany, get out of the country. It wasn't, I still is not the nicest place to live. I'm going to have to say that. <laughs> and um, you just wanted to, to go. Conrad, so, what gave you the confidence to be able to pack up everything move to a foreign country with only a few hundred pounds in your pocket and know that you'll be all right? Do you know what? I can't remember. I think it was a choice to be able to be the own master of your destiny or to be beholden to other people's decisions. Mm. And I, for one, don't want to be in the latter category. I just want to create the path for myself and for people around me. Um, so that there is a, you can always stand up and say, I decided this for me and that's the thing and I can stand by it. But if you sit there and wait for something to happen to you, you might not like what happens to you. So it was really the initiative um, doing that. And that convinced that this is work, that this will work. But look, I mean, up to hindsight is a beautiful thing. Mm. Um, it could have all gone completely wrong, right? I mean, in the UK, I started working call centers for £8.15 an hour to be able to pay the rent, mm. you know, but that's okay. It's fine. You know, you, you're high up and you're low down again in life. And I don't mind. And that's why I've got huge respect for everybody that does any kind of job. I would that's never crazy. judge somebody that does a certain job by the job they're doing because there's a reason why they're doing it. Oh, wow. So to be fair, I didn't expect to hear any of that, actually. And hmm. it goes to show when I see you or what I've seen so far is you have this big senior leadership position you worked in big pharma companies and i never once thought about what is your journey how did that origin story mm. start which i think will surprise a lot of our listeners and i'm actually glad you shared it having Thanks. worked at the call center what were the next few career moves you did how mm -hmm. did you kind of get more into digital marketing what were the roles so i worked um out of that space and i worked for ipsos mori um, which a lot of people know, and I actually had to do the journey from Streatham on the hill all the way to Harrow on the hill with trains and everything. And that took me every day about five hours in total for £8.50 now. <laughs> yeah, makes you laugh. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, after that, um, I worked um, a bit of other jobs as well, like for an events company and this and that. But the biggest break I got was moving into e-commerce. Mm -hmm. So a company called Digital River, they're still around. I cherish them a lot. And a lot of people that I work with are still there and they're doing great stuff. And it's a SaaS provider. And I was client marketing manager, basically, um, for Canon, G Healthcare, a bit of Microsoft, a bit of this and that. And uh, and that was the first, when you call like like corporate digital experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the fashion time, the fashion brand, we were the first ones that had a Twitter account, right? and 
all that stuff and you had an e-commerce shop um, that we built and but that was sort of a little bit here and there but the professional thing um, happened in digital river four years i was there quite a quite a journey so working across like b2b b2c as well and then there are these things like i don't know if you guys know this like b2b2c there's also yeah b2b2b oh wow um, yeah <laughs> you know you got all sorts of stuff um going on in that space but that was a that was the first sort of corporate piece plus digital. What happened next? So you're there for a few years. Mm. Why move on? If this was your career break, why did you decide to move on? A career, you know, career progression, better pay? Well, I mean, better pay was one thing, although uh, Ditch River does take good care of its employees. Um, mm. But do you know what? I've got one, it's a benefit I have, but it's also a problem. I get bored easily. Um, mm. And I just got a bit bored. After four years, and there were um, there was no immediate sort of career progression from where I was, and um, so essentially I went out in the hunt for for something else. By sort of accident, landed in this um, in this sort of agency land, where I then worked uh, for the vast majority uh, in and with Mastercard. The point is up to that. There is a lot of skills that are transferable. Like gift of the gap is one, right? But how to create partnerships, how to corral people around a certain problem to fix or a cause. And that never goes away. I, I never knew anything about really e-commerce before I joined Ditch River. I knew nothing about fashion before I opened a fashion brand. And I knew nothing about finance before I worked for MasterCard. Mm. It doesn't matter. The sector doesn't matter. What matters is the attitude and the soft skills you bring to the table. So that was two years. And I had a, like MasterCard was pretty cool. I had a pleasure of working on activation of Champions League um, and a bit of this and that. And they've got sport assets mm. um, and the Brit Awards. Um, and um, the agency is called Big Group. And they're still around. It's a great company. So, but ultimately, I, agency land wasn't for me, right? Um, and that's for me again. Look, this is fair statement. You, you're gonna have to see where are your limitations. If you go against your own gut feel and your limitations, you're never gonna be happy. So, I, I survived pretty much for two years, I have to say, and uh, and then went into pharma, which we can talk about. But just before mm. we touch on that journey, I believe in entrepreneurs. They founded their own company there's always an itch to go back while doing this did you at the back of your head think i really need to get out i really need to start another company you know what was how do you balance that so i've got a stat for you over 50 percent of health tech entrepreneurs are in their 40s okay i'm, I'm 43 now okay. my age away. i know i don't look it um yeah. but um so there is a you know, you've got all that experience and then you say like, okay, I'm going to do this now. I currently don't have the itch and I never had it again. Mm. Um, the reason why that is, is I, there is a, um, I think I personally, I think I need a bit of stability in my life. Like, uh, you know, and then within that, you can explore and do certain things, drive business, whatever that is. I think I, and I found it out for myself. I, I kind of need that stability um otherwise it just gives me sleepless nights and drives me mm. mad um what's important to acknowledge is like for example when the business went really bad in germany and and we had to close down and stuff that was like from a mental health standpoint it was really tough period as well um yeah. really tough and it took me a while to get out of that and i just don't want to go back to that space ever i think in the world of entrepreneurship we always talk about the glamour getting onto 
the podcast, the TechCrunch newsletter, and no, and no one really talks about how difficult and lonely it can actually be as well. Um, so no, thank you for um, highlighting mm. all of that. The next, so the next phase of your career goes into the world of pharma. What I want you to talk about a little bit is before actually going into the world of pharma, what were your thoughts about pharma before even going in? And then your thoughts during the process of you getting into it and then your process as you were in pharma. Talk us to about the different viewpoints that you've had. It won't come to you as a surprise, and that was a leading question, as I'm sure, that uh, my perception about pharma wasn't the best before I joined, mm. right? So I remember talking to my brother who lives in Germany um, the week I joined Pfizer, great company, um, great CEO, and I, I told him, look, I'm going to start working for the devil. <laughs> That's, and I will never forget that, right? And... Um, and of course, my view has changed, right? Because you learn mm. and you're actually less ignorant. So I would call this uh, ignorance saying that. Mm. Um, but that was uh, the gen my general perception, right? So the initial drive mm. working for Pfizer was because um, I wanted to do something else. There was a good opportunity and I needed the money. There you go, right? It, you, you, I didn't join out of conviction. Um, mm. and, and I think... Only sort of in the process of the first sort of year in Pfizer, I started to like the culture and the people were really dedicated. And, and then you sort of get these nuggets where you feel like, actually, you know what, what we're doing here makes sense. But I also want to highlight in my six years in pharma, I always had a leg outside. Mm. I never stepped fully into the pharma world. And I've been quite yeah. transparent to everybody. Um, I was working with because you need to have that eye of what else is going on and where where are the influences and what do other people think. Otherwise, you yeah. get like get the tunnel vision and then what? Mm. You mentioned you yeah. had one leg out. What does that mean? What were you doing? I wasn't um, like making money somewhere else, but it's more mentally mm. um, keeping a leg out. So listening um, to to other voices. Um, mm. as well. not maybe not the ones that call pharma a devil, um, which mm. I'm not too keen on anymore, but especially around the COVID crisis and the impact actually pharma has delivered there. Mm. But more making sure you have a viewpoint and you can put things into perspective. Yeah. You know, I mean, a pharma company, a li look, life sciences company is there to serve people who don't like me that much for saying that, but it serves the shareholders, mm. right? That's what, because it's a corporate that has a quarterly earnings and that's what that is. But also without farm, we would have a child mortality rate of about 50%, right? And a few other things uh, wouldn't work quite well. Um, and our life expectancy would hover around 45. So yeah. let's just be clear, right? Mm. No, absolutely. So, Conrad, talking a little bit about pharma, the reason why I asked that question, right, is so I'm not affiliated with pharma. I, I am a doctor by background, but I've never worked for them. No sponsors, nothing like that. Now, with pharma, right, so they are responsible for a lot of the innovations that have been brought forward in healthcare. Um, and recently we were at a the HET conference. There was a really interesting um, discussion about the industry and whether there should be more collaboration between healthcare and the industry, i.e. pharma. Now, obviously, the what you've just said about pharma, right? Everyone's got these misconceptions and preconceived ideas. They're just fueled mm -hmm. by so-and-so, whatever they are, right? And we often forget well, that. What about the innovations they're responsible for? How do you think we can, first of all, is collaboration a good thing between the industry and healthcare? 
And then how can we get more collaboration going forward? Because the healthcare needs innovation going forward. We need innovation to serve that demand that's been put on the system. What do you see here? Thank you. Um, I definitely think there is a case for more collaboration between industry. And industry for me is not just life sciences, i.e. pharma, it's also mm. the tech, um, mm. the electronics and Boston dynamics of this world, right? So because yeah. more and more, um, and then emerging health tech companies as well, the, the big guns of this world, for, for a few reasons. Number one, knowledge, knowledge, knowledge exchange. I think that's that's a key piece here. Um, and when I was working in Novartis, heading up the biome there, we'll speak about that in a bit, but then also here now in my new role, it's all about translation. So there's a pharma speech and there's an NHS speech and there's a health tech sector speech and this, what, and that needs to be translated. So mm. I always think if only we were to speak the same language and the same language is, much, is as much as two countries that can't stand one another if they don't talk and if they put, don't put a translator in the middle, they will never understand each other. And ultimately what's going to happen is they're going to throw bombs at each other, right? Mm. And here the bombs would be a lack of collaboration, more pharma companies moving out of the UK, a drop in the relevancy of the UK life sciences sector, less clinical trials, fewer jobs, prosperity drops, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And honestly, mm. guys, we see that. It mm. is starting to happen. So mm. we need to do more for it not to happen. Um, so I'm not, I'm just want to be clear. I'm not wanting to open the floodgates for the NHS to be privatized. Mm. It is a public good and it has to be a public good. Without the knowledge and the financial means of life sciences companies, mm. yes. we are not going to be able to solve the problems of our time. Absolutely. Mm. I agree. And and I imagine this goes on to your role at Novartis. How do you get that translation happening? Where are the platforms it's happening? Where Because we talk about these conferences one day, amazing, everyone's high, and then two days later it, it disappears. And it's again, these spikes with no meaningful change. What would you say are practical steps to getting to that kind of collaboration and those mm -hmm. open comms? Absolutely. Clear answer, money. Mm -hmm. the, oh, that's the only language here. So mm -hmm. What um, I'm advocating for, this is me as Conrad speaking personally, um, so I'm not speaking on behalf of the NHS, obviously, um, is a shared approach between industry and the taxpayer to accelerate adoption of health tech in the UK. And actually today there was an announcement, 30 million funds for health tech mm. adoption and acceleration. Personal opinion, is 30 million enough? No, mm. you need another zero and you need yep. to do it annually. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. But the point is, the burden shouldn't be just on the taxpayer. It should be a shared burden. Why? Because if the system, like an academic health and science network, an HSN, like the one I'm working in with 50% of my job, um, or any other taxpayer-funded innovation entity solves pathway problems in early diagnostic for cancer, why wouldn't a pharma company pay for that as well? Mm. We're solving their problems as well. And I've been mm. recently at a roundtable, um, uh, Chatham House Rule applies with uh, some colleagues um, from pharma organized by the ABPI. And I've asked around the table and everybody said, well, for me, it's early diagnostic is the main problem. And it was basically 80% of them. So when I asked the question back, so why are we not collating this together? And with system, you put in the same money that Department of Health puts in. We create an adoption fund and we solve problems with two or three vendors nationally. Yeah. That moves the needle. That accelerates early detection in cancer in particular. And that can solve a problem. Not yeah the pilotitis that we're seeing. Yeah, no, absolutely. And Conrad, what about, 
so I was also discussing with another friend of mine, what about not just on the solution aspect? So when a solution does come out, right, and it is a commercial product, what about also sharing the rewards of that commercial product with the guys who provided data in the first place? Do you think that could ever happen? So say the NHS and the public funded bodies provided really good data, pathways, etc. And from that, an innovation, a drug or something came out. Do you think they then have a right to some of the profits? Because so it goes back into that sort of um, ecosystem of also supporting further innovation. But here you need to split out two things. You need to split out um, innovative medicines, which quite frankly, I'm not here to talk about, right? So that's not my spiel, mm. but mm. I can talk about um, health tech, mm. right? Mm. Um, and I think there, there is a case for probably not an equity play, but a royalty play. Mm. Um, because Look, I mean, and you know this, what happens to UK um, entrepreneurs and innovators that also through the NHS Innovation Accelerator, we help to increase the maturity and get the adoption and scale in the NHS. But look, what the majority of them does, don't blame them. They go to the US and to UAE. But where did they get their innovation grants from SBRI this year? It's you guys paying for that. People listening, us talking, we all pay for this. So for me, there's a fair point to say for a certain amount of time, if you've benefited from these taxpayer-funded programs, you should look at a royalty scheme of playing back stuff in system and actually uh, giving back, right? Um, because some of those okay. companies are, um, are very, very big now, rather yeah. large, actually. And some of them are going to be large. Like we've got on the NIA alumni, like Orca, Patients Knows Best, yeah. Health Navigator, uh, the list is endless mm. and and all these companies are making really well and i'm also not saying they're making it just because of the nia or an sbri fund but the doors were open they got a push then they made the right decisions fine but give some back and i and absolutely yeah and i think it's glad you echoed it i think even in the head hassan trody was chairing the session was talking a lot about co-creation co-production everyone benefiting in the ecosystem and like you said it doesn't necessarily have to be equity it can be royalty revenue access Mm -hmm. to information from pharma as well right not just us giving to them and i think that brings us on to maybe some of the work you did at novartis tell us a bit more about biome and then we'll talk about kind of your current roles oh absolutely pleasure in novartis um I was brought on in uh, 2020, uh, leaving, leaving from Pfizer um, to head up the biome, which is their innovation lab. I headed, headed that up for the UK and um, I had a team as well. And that was the interesting bit. It was a combo role. Again, I like two hats probably, I don't know, because I get bored easily, right? Um, <laughs> so heading up that, um, that innovation lab, and but also heading up a team that actually works on uh, what we call customer solutions innovators. So creating joint workings or now collaborative workings with NHS entities from a pharma standpoint. So at any given time, the team that I looked after, a brilliant gang of people, a lot of them are still around there, um, creating over a hundred ongoing collaborative workings with the NHS. Mm. Uh, with ICSs, trusts, providers, whoever. Um, and I learned so much there. And speaking about sort of that translation, which we had before, and then how this is done, sometimes it's around trust and transparency. So if a problem emerged that Novartis in a certain brand, in oncology, whatever, um, had to solve, what, uh, what we would do, we would try to find uh, a vendor that could help with that. 
Famously, we did a, a heart health call out um, <clears throat> where we were trying to find non-invasive lipid testing. So non-invasive means no blood, okay, but any other body liquids. And um, turns out we didn't find any. But what the point, and I'm not going to talk about Brandy, of course, um, but one of the problems in that Novartis had is how to identify patients that have a certain LDLC, I think, over a certain level. But do that mm. in the home in a more agile fashion. So ultimately, they, these patients can be potentially eligible for a Novartis treatment, right? Mm. That's usually the chain. Is that translating of that need from pharma to the outside world, making sure they understand what we're talking about, and then whoever comes in, making sure that what they're talking about is understood from a trust level, as in, hey, they can actually help us and their solution makes sense and it has legs into mm. the ethic and compliance frameworks in the pharma company. Trust me, you do not want to rock up at an ethic and compliance hearing, I call it hearing, in a pharma company without being properly prepared. They're going to just rip you apart and you're going to run around, you're going to run away crying. <laughs> uh, and rightfully so, right? Because they, they want to make sure patients don't get negatively impacted. Yeah. Um, I've been a few times there, Pfizer Novartis, and I don't want to go back into these meetings. I'm scared. <laughs> no, definitely. That then brings me on to a nice way to kind of end the, the pharma journey. You have been working in the private sector per se. Why then switch into healthcare, NHS innovation, UCL partners? And I, and I know you started both roles at the same time, I believe, with this double hat. Yep. So tell us a bit more about that transition. So... I mean, this is by sheer chance, right? So um, Novartis was going through a bit of a change curve and um, I didn't, at the time, I didn't feel like that's, that I want to be part of that change and that's fine. That's a personal motivation to do that. And I just browsed um, the internet as one does these days. And, and I came across this sort of dual role, national director and chief enterprise officer, right? And I just clicked on the contact and got in touch with Chris Langs, which is the CEO, your new sale partners, um, with the, with the PA. And, um, we had a chat, Chris and I. And the first thing, and you would second that, the first thing that I told him that I don't believe in accelerators. <laughs> mm. uh, and I still don't. Um, <laughs> Why? You know, tell us why. I, I can ex yeah, tell us I why. I can explain to you why I don't. <laughs> tell us why. Um, so I believe in development of people, right? I believe in access. Mm. I believe in in learning, in commercial uh, thinking. But if you wrap that into the word acceleration, what are you accelerating? You're actually giving them a helping hand because the acceleration comes from them. So we're more like a like a development program that ultimately provides um, the maturity for these fellows and their solutions, but also market access for adoption and scale. And look, we've got 34 fellows on board now, year one, two, and three, because the NIA is, um, is a three-year program, um, which we're currently recruiting for, by the way, and I will say this many times again, probably a third of them, can, you can see that after three years, they may still be in a position where they are dependent on some grants, you know, HEK, SBRI, right? Mm. Two thirds, you can see, hey, they cracked this, they're going to they're gonna make their way up. And it's a proper, sustainable business. And I tell you something, I think it's fine. You can't assume that out of 34 entities, every single one is going to go through the roof. 
Mm. It, that's impossible. And I think already saying that person, my personal assessment, two thirds are going to make it. That's way more than you would think about VC land. Yeah. Right. They're probably like 20% yeah. make it and the rest is all going nowhere. Um, so the motivation to change, and you asked me, and I do want to talk about this a bit. So the motivation to change was I wanted to be truly closer to patient impact. Because I, if you work six years in pharma, I told you about these little nuggets, and but they were just nuggets, right? I, I want to be there when we bring patient needs, system needs, vendor, whatever, together, and magic happens. Like, for example, early cancer diagnostic, plugging an NIA fellow cited with cytosponge, diagnose cancer in the throat and stuff um, really, really well. And that saves lives. Like, you know, I mean, and we're not, we're not talking about accelerating or medicines uptake here. We're talking about helping people to get a stage one or two cancer diagnostics so they don't have to take meds or you can do it operationally and actually help them immediately. And that's it. Mm. So that emotional piece was missing. And trust me, I didn't do it for the money. It, yeah. I mean, that's we for sure. Figured, yeah, we figured that. <laughs> and and, but, and that, that's okay. Like, you know, I hired in, like in the journey now, the NIA, but also UCL partner side, so many absolutely talented people. And the people here are talented as well. I don't think anybody does it for the money. Yeah. We do it because we have a purpose and we have a conviction that we really want to do something about all of this. And there is a problem and there is a, there, we have an ill healthcare system, mm. right? It's limping on one leg with crutches. Let's just be honest here. And we need to help. We, we just need to help fix it. No, thank you for sharing that. And I could sense the passion and the motivations. And I'm sure it wasn't easy leaving kind of those senior commercial roles in this kind of big pharma world to come and help. For our listeners who we do have a lot of health tech entrepreneurs, founders, Tell us a bit more about the program. I know the recruitment sure. is open. We're going to link it below and everything. Tell us a bit more what they can expect, what it entails. Yeah, happy, happy to. Um, so first of all, if you, um, and I know there's, a, there's going to be a link um, as well, but if you want to, if you happen to be on Google, just Google NIA and NHS, and then you have the website already. Really easy. Mm. Um, so it's a three-year fellowship program. It's a 50-50 piece between you as a fellow, as well as the actual innovation that you bring to the table. Um, we're a, a program that helps you on the maturity journey um, to get from where you might want to be in terms of um, evidence, patient involvement, health inequality, commercial viability, sustainability. Um, net zero is a big element as well. Mm. Um, and we can help you with our connections and with the team as well to get to that sort of gold standard maturity where in practice and in theory, you are nationally adoptable. Is this going to happen the, nas the national level adoption? Unlikely, but what is going to happen is it opens you more doors to be adoptable, procurable, mm. even in the, in the space of, um, of ICSs. So, and to enable this, we're working with um, a variety of entities. I mean, I have regular conversations with NICE, MHRA, um, but also um, we're going to start with, um, this might be an exclusive on this podcast here, we're going to start with the Crown Commercial Service oh, wow. as well um, yeah. uh, to get our fellows that apply now, but also the fellows on, on the legacy fellows on their uh, framework because 75% of people don't get to work with the NHS that have a really cool solution because of barriers in procurement. Mm. Mm. And there's also really capable people in NHS England 
Jackie Rock's team, chief commercial officer, they're trying to get rid of so, some of that procurement red tape. And we're helping a lot with that. Market access is a key piece. We're very well linked into the Department of Health and Social Care. We're working with Green NHS. That is going to help you if you become a fellow um, to create your carbon reduction plans, without which from 2028, you cannot have a contract in NHS England anymore. Um, okay. We are helping with um, health inequality assessments. Again, a key factor. Um, one other key factor more and more will be how many uh, have you involved patients in the development of your solution? So PPIE, hmm. key factor, um, just a bit about um, is it worth applying and applications close 22nd of October. Um, it's worth applying if you have a solution that is already live in the NHS, at least in one location. Um, you don't need to have necessarily a solid contract in place, but it needs to be a running pilot hmm. that has real world evidence. We prefer clinical practice evidence, which is different to real world evidence, right? So something is working properly in a healthcare setting. And you also need to have um, a proper uh, corporate structure in place. Like you need to have a company and mm. your solution needs to work. It just needs to work. Mm. Um, what Tony Young does uh, with his brilliant team around clinical entrepreneurship is more around the early stages, right? So I really value Tony, the work he does. And you can almost argue that the NIA, which is open to all, also internationally open, uh, picks up some of those that are then ready to come into the NIA. Lastly, just quickly, we've got um, a five-month assessment process. So clinical assessment, NICE assessment, MHRA, all those entities are going to look at your solution. There's uh, an interview stage process. There is another two board NIA board approval stage processes. It, uh, we're doing due diligence with, as I said, with Crown Commercial Service, as well as with uh, ORCA. There's mm. a huge piece of work happening to make sure that whoever joins is ready to join. It makes sense. And from the companies I saw, it's the next step up after the clinical entrepreneurship program, yep. people that are a bit more active in life. We started this podcast with you, Conrad. We want to end it with you. All uh, right. Okay. Let's see. What, you know, <laughs> what are you most excited about in the, in the future of innovation and digital transformation in NHS? You know, where, where can we see you in five years? Because oh one thing God. I have left. One thing I have learned so far, Conrad, is you like to move on. You like to try lots of different things. So, so that's what I'm most interested about. Okay. So I tell you, tell you what my dream is. So in five years, I want to work in the space industry. Oh, wow. Oh, nice. So that's, well, why not, right? It's all about tech and innovation. And there's a rather big gap up there to explore. Um, I'm a huge Star Wars and Star Trek. I'm one of those weird people that like both. Like both. <laughs> you know? Um, so there you go. I just admitted that. Uh, don't hate me for it, but I can deal with both. <laughs> um, uh, the new Obi-Wan is really good on Disney Plus, just saying. <laughs> and that's, that's where I wanted, like five years would be cool, right, to okay. be there. And within those five years, I think what we're going to have to do is, is help, number one, sustain, and this sounds weird, right, but we're going to have to sustain where the NHS is right now. So we already... We, we do have a two-week two cancer rating target, which gets um, the majority of cases fulfilled. If you rock up at an A&E, and I know people are waiting, and, and that's horrible. But I tell you what, if you rock up with a small child and it needs to be seen because there's problems, you will get seen, right? Um, and I think that part we need to keep. We need to keep, the, we need to keep doctors, nurses, 
that run the NHS. It's not people that sit in offices. It's people on the ground that run the NHS. We need to keep them engaged, motivated. Um, I'm not here to talk about salaries and strikes, of course, mm. but we need to keep people on it. I think that's really important. And, and that will help sustain the NHS. Where we can help is with automation, like risk stratification, diagnostic. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you something else, Abdul, and both of you, is that ultimately the treatment is sitting in front of somebody, is doing a surgery. Um, you know, are we going to have in five years robotic uh, nanorobot, nanorobots removing cancer cells? Potentially, right? Mm. But we're still 10, 15, 20 years off from that become accessible to lots of people. So yeah. we need people, right? And they need to stay. So that's probably the key focus here. It's not so much about generative AI and uh, no, it's not like, no, it's just get the basics right and make sure people stay. Mm, no, I agree. One of the questions I wanted to ask and you touched on it is there is so much innovation, so much cutting edge tech, but the core of retention, recruitment, mm. you know, the workplace culture is struggling so much. And, and what you said, I, I agree, it's about sustaining what we have now and just you know, keeping it. But thank you, Conrad, for sharing that. This was, I have to admit, a podcast. You took it in a very different direction, which I didn't expect. Oh, did I? Good. <laughs> yeah, which is always interesting. And one thing we do find from listeners is you are in leadership positions. And when people know your own personal story, your own career journey, your motivations, it assess or changes the perception they have for the organizations people run like yourself. So these are very important and we it's a privilege for us to share it. So thank you once again, Conrad, for taking the time out to share your story. Absolutely welcome. And, and again, call out to innovators to apply to the NIA. We will do. We will link it Definitely. for sure.